Our Father, I, I do pray that we were truly joyful to be together today. And though we're few in number, we're united by the common bond of your spirit. And you have promised us that where even two or three are gathered in your name, there you are in the midst of your people. And Lord, we know that you abide with your people. Jesus told his disciples that that they would see him depart and their hearts would be filled with sorrow and a sense that all had been lost. And yet, there was the pledge that I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you do abide with us that your life is our life and that by your spirit we are ever with you, you are ever with us. You have made a place for us and that place is in the Father's life and the Father's love. And we thank you that we share that place together and that we are bound together to be a part of this holy sanctuary that you are building on the foundation that is Christ himself. And Father, as we turn our minds and our hearts um, back to this ancient story, what's perhaps a, a startling story, a strange story, one that may seem far removed from our experience and the time that we inhabit, I pray that we would see through that story the outworking of this marvelous plan the plan to ultimately sum up everything in the creation in Christ by seeing everything transformed in him, renewed and perfected by his spirit. So, Father, continue uh, our worship in spirit and in truth as we come to your word now in study and consideration. Bless us, instruct us, May each one be built up in the faith, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think with this group, I probably don't need to say this, but just as a reminder of how important it is that we, we understand that we read the scripture as a story. We don't read it as a collection of theological truths. We don't read it as, uh, you know, um, proof text for theological or doctrinal or practical hobby horses that we may have. We don't read the scripture as a kind of religious Aesop's uh, fables that gives us uh, moral and ethical advice. We read the scripture as a story, but a particular story, not a story that we invent or a story that we want to find, but the story that God himself has purpose from all eternity and that uh, he wrote in the outworking of those purposes in the salvation history and as he recorded that for us in the scripture. So we saw, you know, even in considering Abraham, how we have to see him at the center of this story in very important ways. I mentioned the last time that uh, Abraham plays a central part in the New Testament, not in the way people tend to view him as simply an example of what it is to have faith and be justified by faith. 
but in many ways, he is the foundation upon which uh, God's work stands. Israel has its source in Abraham, and Israel found its own destiny in the Messiah himself. And Paul can come to the point where he can say that it's belonging to Abraham in the sense of uh, sharing in the seed of Abraham that actually makes us children of Abraham and heirs of the promise. So even though none of us uh, is Jewish, uh, I don't think any of us is Jewish ethnically, but uh, nonetheless, we are in truth Abraham's children in a way that even Jews have to become Abraham's children because he's not a Jew who's one outwardly, but one who has a circumcision done in the inner man by Christ himself. If we belong to the Messiah, who is Abraham's son, then we are children of Abraham and heirs of the promise made to him. So we very much should have a sense of our own identity and our own calling in our own place in God's purposes in relation to Abraham. So the Abraham story is very important. And it also needs to be read within the larger storyline, um, even as we come to this episode in chapter 22. We have to see God's call to Abraham, God's uh, covenant with Abraham, ultimately the episode on Mount Moriah as a part of God working out this determination that he first uh, gave utterance to in the garden, that, that a seed, a human son to come would be the one uh, who would ultimately triumph over the serpent and by implication his works. So when God blessed Abraham and said, I will make you a blessing and you all the families of the earth will be blessed, that has to be seen back through the lens of that promise of God to restore the human race and ultimately the creation that has man at the center. So we saw last time that God promised uh, that Abraham would become a great nation. And later on, God made it clear at the time he ratified the covenant that that great nation would come through an heir, uh, a descendant from Abraham's own body. And after uh, Abraham and Sarah together thought, okay, perhaps God's going to do this through my handmaiden Hagar and Ishmael was born. God made it clear, no, not Ishmael, uh, but a son from Sarah herself will be from your body, but also from Sarah's body, the child of promise. And if you look back in chapter 17, you see God say that, um, 17 verse 15, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah, princess, shall be her name. And I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and he laughed and said in his heart, will a child be born to a man a hundred years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, no, but Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac, Yitzhak. He laughs. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. So Isaac is that promised son, the one promised to Abraham, but also promised to Sarah. 
And the point of that is that already the text wants us to see that all of the covenant and its promises and its outworking and its fulfillment are now bound up in Isaac. The covenant will be passed from Abraham to Isaac. Everything depends on Isaac and not just Isaac being born, but Isaac having his own offspring. That's what we just read. Isaac, Abraham will become a great nation through Isaac, through his descendants, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So when we come to chapter 22, then that's the lens through which we need to read what's happening and the significance of what's happening. And uh, it really does bring the Abraham story to a climax. From this point, the text shifts its emphasis very briefly to Isaac as a transition, then ultimately to Jacob who becomes the primary uh, character in in the balance of the book of Genesis. But it brings the Abraham story to a climax, but in a a, um, very sort of startling or shocking sort of way, because it brings the covenant relationship between God and Abraham to a point of, as I say here, supreme crisis. It's much more than we tend to think when we just read the account if we don't keep it in its larger context. As I say, it constituted the supreme test of Abraham's faith that the God who had chosen him and covenanted with him would prove faithful to his promises. This is a supreme test of faith. It's whether Abraham believes that God is God, that God is true, that God's word will stand. Because this test will require Abraham to trust God in the face of what is impossible. And through the years, you've probably heard me say that the proportion to which something is actually an act of faith is the extent to which it's believing God for what is not humanly decipherable or humanly possible. It's easy to believe God for something that we can strategize our way through. We can see a path through it and say, okay, it'll look like this, then it'll be this, then, okay, I can see how this can work out. But it's in the context of impossibility that faith becomes faith. And ultimately, as we'll see down the road, that was the case for Israel from the time that God um, essentially threw uh, the, the kingdom into the dust and severed David's line. He'd covenanted with Abraham, he'd covenanted with Israel, he covenanted with David concerning a kingdom. And David had brought that kingdom to its pinnacle of fulfillment, and then everything just begins to disintegrate to the point that God even severs David's regal line. And so for the 500-some years between the end of David's kingdom and the birth of the Messiah, Israel has to believe God for what appears to be absolutely impossible. It's not just that they're subject to a Gentile uh, domination. It's not just that uh, Yahweh hasn't returned to his temple. It's not just that there's no Davidic king on the throne. It's that God has actually severed the Davidic line through which he promised to raise up a son. How can both be true? It's an impossibility. And it's the same sort of thing here. 
you have God requiring something of Abraham that argues against the covenant. It's God, in a sense, undermining himself. How can this be? But the other thing that, as I say here, is that the Moriah episode makes a monumental contribution. We've even considered that this morning in our singing, the things that, uh, that Mark has said. This makes a huge contribution to the unfolding revelation of God's intent for the world. How it is that he would do what he first spoke of in the garden. And even what he covenanted to Abraham and you all the families of the earth would be blessed. It gives us profound insight into how the covenant with Abraham, which is grounded in God's oath in Eden, was to attain its ultimate fulfillment. This becomes absolutely foundational in that way. So we'll kind of go through this. Um, I won't read the whole chapter at one sitting here, but we'll go through it in, in pieces. But this episode begins with a second call to Abraham. God called him while he was in Ur, said, leave your family, leave your country, go to a place that I will show you. And here again, God is saying, leave, go to a place that I will show you. There's an open-endedness. Verse 1, it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Now, in a certain sense, this your only son is misleading because Isaac wasn't the only son, right? Ishmael was actually 13 years older than than Isaac. This actually becomes, and this is a sidetrack that I'm not going to go down, but this becomes a part of Islam's justification that it was actually Ishmael that Abraham offered because at the time that they argue Ishmael was offered, he was the only son of Abraham. Take your son, your only son. They say Isaac wasn't the only son. He was the second son. But the idea here is not only in terms of, you know, numerically, but in some versions of the Septuagint even renders it this way, your beloved son, And that's kind of emphasized your only son, the son whom you love. And in the context, again, if if this is read in the light of what we've already seen, there is a uniqueness to Isaac as the covenant son. Yes, I will bless Ishmael. Yes, he'll become a great nation. Yes, he will also be the father of 12 tribes. And I'll give him an inheritance. But my covenant is with Isaac. Oh, that Ishmael would live before you. No, it will be Isaac that will have this unique covenant status. So this actually, in certain um, instances, is translated as uh, the only begotten, the monogenes. In, in the Greek idea, the monogenes, a unique child, not necessarily numerically the only one. And that's the significance here. So Abraham is called to go to a place that God will show him and to offer his son, the son of the covenant, as a burnt offering. And the idea of a burnt offering is where the offering is utterly devoted to God. It's utterly consumed. It's burned to where there's nothing left. And so in that sense, the offering is utterly taken up and consumed 
in devotion to God and in, in worship to God. Give me your son utterly. But in order to present a burnt offering, Isaac has to be killed, right? And we see that even in the way the story plays out. So often, and I don't know if you've ever heard sermons or teaching on this passage, but often it's treated in terms of what a terrible thing, what a huge demand that God would make on a person to ask that person to kill one of his own children. What a huge test of faith for Abraham uh, that he would be required to himself take the life of one of his children. And that's not untrue, but that's not really the point here. The issue isn't a test as to whether Abraham loves God enough that he loves him more than his son and he will kill his son because God told him to do it. The test is whether he will believe God for two things that cannot fit together. God has told him everything concerning this covenant and its outworking is bound up in Isaac. And not just that Isaac was born, but as I said, that he would have his own children. God has covenanted and sworn to Abraham, and ultimately this purpose that Abraham himself couldn't even see the full scope of it, but this global purpose of God that that God has now bound up in Abraham is now being passed on to Isaac, and God says to him, take him and kill him, present him to me as a burnt offering. Abraham knew that Isaac was wholly devoted to the Lord, but he, now how do you work this out? You can't have a dead son and a son who bears offspring, right? So he has to believe God for two contradictory things. As I said, just as in the case with, with Israel, where God said, a son of David will sit on the throne, and this son of David, through this royal line, In him I will build David's house and throne and kingdom. My purposes in renewing all things are bound up in a son of David. Then he curses David's line and says, Never again will a son from that line sit on the throne or reign in Israel. How how can two plus two equal four and six? And so Abraham either believes this or he believes this. How does he hold that God has integrity and God is truthful and both things are equally true and both things are equally binding, both things equally express God's integrity? That's what the test is. When there's no way to understand how this could possibly work. And, you know, if we remember from Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews gives us a glimpse into that and he says, Abraham believed that God was going to raise him from the dead. That was the way both could be true. And he says in a type or in a figure, he did raise him from the dead. So God was requiring Abraham to believe him and believe the truth of two mutually exclusive truths. Waltke says the command to sacrifice Isaac teeters on the edge of morality, but far more than that, it teeters on the edge of absurdity or coherence it becomes incoherent we're left with the inexplicable and exacting realization that faith demands radical obedience abraham is asked to believe to behave in a way that is illogical 
absurd that actually undermines the covenant. He says, at the very least, a non-conventional action from the human perspective. But within the biblical worldview, such radical behavior proves the true nature of biblical faith. And, you know, we'll even talk about this thing of human sacrifice. If you know Israel's history, one of the things that God specifically pointed to behind his condemnation of the nation and the exile and desolation was them sacrificing their children. Remember that? So there's an absurdity in this, and it's not that you know the sacrificing of children wasn't a part of ancient history or paganism or whatever, uh, but this is a unique occurrence in the history of, of God's dealings with people. The second thing that we see as we go through the story is that Abraham passed the test even before the sacrifice occurred. He now has the better part of three days walking, waiting for God to show him where he's to stop. He's walking with his son by his side and with these uh, servants with him, having time to think about this and, and, you know, kind of ruminate on it and wrestle with it in his mind. It doesn't just happen right away. God gives him time to have to deal with this, with his son walking beside him. And ultimately, when he comes to the region of Moriah and is aware that this is the place, he says to the servants, you wait here and the boy and I are going to go worship. And then we will return. And that's the one clue that you have uh, that Abram did not believe that the sacrifice of Isaac would be the end of the story. And yet he was fully resolved in his mind to sacrifice Isaac. We will go and we will worship. And that worship meant presenting the burnt offering. And as he's now walking with Isaac and, and he's got, you know, a pot with the coals to start the fire for the burnt offering and he's got the wood for it. And Isaac says, Father, you know, I see the wood, I see the fire, but where is the ram for the offering or the, you know, the animal for the offering? Yahweh will provide And he wasn't saying, oh, I know God's going to give me a ram in a thicket. He just wasn't telling Isaac, you're that sacrifice. God is providing that sacrifice. So he goes and he he binds Isaac. And we don't, you know, the story doesn't tell us, you know, whether Isaac, you know, why isn't he fighting with him? Or why is Isaac resolved to say, okay, I'll climb on this altar and allow you to kill me and, and, you know, burn burn my body. But you see Abraham raise the knife, and he's prepared in his heart. He's already sacrificed his son. And at that point, now you have the Lord call by his angel and say, stay your hand. Stay your hand. This is verse 11. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, as he did at the time of the call, here I am. And he said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God. And this isn't being afraid of God. This is the idea of a reverential conscious devotion. God in the forefront of his mind and his heart and his thinking in his life. Since you have not withheld your son, your only son, same idea there from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. 
And Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. This is one of the few times where you see God swearing by himself. It gives an added kind of solemnity or power or gravity to his oath. Paul speaks the same way when he said God because he could swear by no one greater swore by himself, right? By two immutable things in which it's impossible for God to lie. He swore by himself concerning the son. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you. I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven, the reiterating of the promises. As the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. And in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So that's the gist of the story. And the main thing that I wanted to kind of draw out of this um, today is how do we understand the relationship between Abraham's action and God's confirmation of the covenant? And I think the natural tendency and often the common conclusion is to say, well, ultimately the covenant depended on Abraham's obedience, Abraham's obedience was absolutely necessary uh, to God's purposes in a cause and effect sort of way. But yet we've seen in the story to this point already in several instances that, and we talked about this last time, that it wasn't because of Abraham, but in spite of Abraham that the covenant went forward. Particularly in the way Abraham dealt with Sarah. If it were up to Abraham, the covenant would have died with him. And then we'll see the same thing with Isaac. Isaac very much replicates Abraham's same practices, right? And all along the line, and certainly when we see the nation of Israel, um, it's not because Israel is faithful that the covenant goes forward, but in spite of their unfaithfulness. So how do we understand this issue of the kind of conditionality of Abraham's obedience uh, to the covenant that God would say, now, because you have done this, therefore, this will be the outcome that will come. I say God's promise of global blessing was now bound up in Isaac. What we're, what we're to understand by this, God had said that, that in Isaac, all of this will be accomplished. But Isaac is now seen to be the sacrificial seed. Isaac is understood in terms of his utter consecration to God. The sacrificial Abrahamic seed raised from the dead in connection with an acceptable substitutionary offering, that one would mediate the blessings of the covenant to all the nations. Isaac is now, in a sense, uh, shown in this sort of a way, to be this sort of a person. And Abraham as well. To the extent that the world of men would follow Abraham's example, believing God for his promises and yielding themselves in submissive trust to his provision of a substitute, they would show themselves to be his true children and therefore 
heirs of the promises made to him. So the obedience of of Abraham in offering Isaac didn't determine the covenant's fulfillment, but served to clarify that fulfillment. It wasn't that it was irrelevant, but it wasn't a cause and effect thing. It had a necessity, but by way of developing God's revelation of how this would take place, ultimately for the sake of creating the kind of continuity as this event was prophetic and typological. Just one quick comment before I sum that up, and that's this fact that the the text wants you to see this is the last of Abraham's altars. As far as we know, this is what the text tells us. This was his last altar. Remember, he, in, in view of this covenant to give you this covenant grant as he moves through the land, he builds altars and calls on the name of the Lord. This is the last one. This is the pinnacle of Abraham's, in a sense, appropriating of the promise. And now in Isaac, and in connection with what Abraham has done there with Isaac, we see that that this is kind of the, the apex of God's promise to give Abraham this land, to establish his dwelling, if you will, to restore sacred space. So more than just a personal triumph of faith, the episode at Moriah introduced into God's revelation the crucial truth that fulfillment of the covenant depended not merely on the birth of the covenant son or merely that he would have offspring, but his sacrifice to God as a required offering, an offering that God himself ultimately provided, an offering that yields life out of death. So the crucial connection between Abraham's obedience and God's covenant with him is this. Abraham's failure, had Abraham failed to honor this call, this obligation that God gave to him, it would mean the failure of the covenant in this sense. That the way in which God would fulfill the covenant in the future, that testimony associated with Abraham would be broken. There would be a falsifying of that intent. God had an intent that would ultimately be fleshed out in the Messiah himself, right? And and I mentioned Galatians 3, but speak to that again in a second. But as God is working this out and how it is that the covenant with Abraham would ultimately be fulfilled, the testifying to that and the building the case for that is very much connected to the offering of Isaac and the way that that played out. And if Abraham had failed to fulfill that action as it contributed to this developing story in God's revelation of how he would do what he would do, then it would break that continuity, it would sever the covenant from the work of Christ. You see what I'm saying? And so it's not that God was saying, gee, Abraham, I hope you do this because if you don't act, then I won't be able to act. This is the way in which faithfulness throughout all of the salvation history becomes that upon which God is dependent. It's by the human contribution to the outworking of the purposes uh, that the story is actually, uh, you know, fleshed out and worked forward. 
It would be like, you know, the human artist putting his own stroke on the, on the painting. So if Abraham had failed, it would mean the failure of the covenant in this sense that God intended the covenant to obtain its fulfillment and therefore bring the creation's renewal, the blessing of God going to all the families of the earth and ultimately by implication the overcoming of the uh, curse, the creational curse. God intended that fulfillment to come through the substitutionary death of Abraham's covenant seed whom Isaac prefigured so if, if you look again in Genesis 3 or uh, Galatians 3 and people often treat Abraham as I say as just an example of what it is to be justified by grace through faith to the point that even some Christian traditions which you know, somehow want to argue that Israel's salvation uh, before the coming of Christ was tied to, you know, uh, obedience to Torah, whatever. They want to pluck Abraham out of that and, and say, well, with the exception of Abraham, he's the one example of justification by grace through faith. But the New Testament doesn't treat him as just an example, but is actually the foundation, the one to whom God made this gospel known. So Paul is talking about ultimately here, what is the purpose of the Torah, the covenant at Sinai in the salvation history, if God's promise was, if God's purposes were bound up in the promise to Abraham, why the law? Why, why does this thing at Sinai get put into the equation? Does it change the way God's going to do what he's going to do? What is the relation between it? That's what Paul is speaking to here. So he says, verse 15, Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though, even if it's only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. His point is, is that the covenant with Abraham couldn't be set aside. It couldn't be added to. Even if you have a human covenant, a human contract, it can't just be set aside arbitrarily. This, is, this was a covenant of God with Abraham. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. And he, God, does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, namely the Messiah. Now, Paul isn't arguing that God didn't, give this promise to the seed that was Isaac and the seed that was Jacob and the seed that was the nation of Israel. But he's saying ultimately all of that was looking to the one seed. When God made that promise to Abraham and his seed, it was ultimately in view of the one seed in whom Isaac and Jacob and the nation of Israel would find their true Abrahamic identity. So Paul was not ignorant of the fact that Isaac and Jacob and Israel were implicated as seeds of Abraham. He's making the point of where God was ultimately going with this and the significance of Isaac and the significance of Jacob, the significance of Israel. So what I'm saying to you then is this, that the law, and by that he means the covenant at Sinai, which came 430 years later after the covenant with Abraham, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God. It does not invalidate the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, in fact, as we've seen, and we'll see more as we move on with the series, 
um, the covenant at Sinai was simply ratifying the Abrahamic promise to the corporate Abrahamic people. It wasn't a totally different covenant. And that's kind of implicit in what Paul's getting at here. It did not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God, the one with Abraham, so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on Sinai, then it is no longer based on a promise, on the law in the sense of of do this and live, the covenant at Sinai. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Well, why the law? If it didn't invalidate the promise, if it didn't change the, the, the way in which God was going to do what he was going to do, why did it, what was God's purpose for it? What purpose did it serve in the salvation history? It was added because of transgressions having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. In other words, it served the promise. It didn't alter or abrogate the promise. It served the promise. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, but God is only one. He, in a sense, is both parties to both covenants. So is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Was Sinai contrary to the covenant God made with Abraham? No, may it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on that law that God gave to Israel. But the scripture has shut up all men, Jew and Gentile alike, under sin, that the promise of faith in Jesus the Messiah might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under Torah, under, he's talking as a Jew, we Jews were kept under custody of Israel's Torah, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed, before faith came. He's not saying there was no such thing as faith before Jesus came into the world, but faith in the sense in which the promises were speaking. That didn't come until the promises were fulfilled with the coming of the Messiah. That becomes obvious in chapter 4. So there was a sense, as Paul is speaking, in which Faith came with the coming of the Messiah. And so therefore the law has become our tutor, a pedagogue, a caregiver, a nurturer, a keeper, a trainer to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. And just as a side note, this is not what often people say, which is this is Paul's evangelism model. You put people under the law to get them to see their sinners, and then when they recognize their sin, then you give them the gospel of justification by faith in Christ. When Paul says the law is a tutor to lead us to Christ, he's not talking about evangelism or how you get people saved. He's talking about the relationship between the Abrahamic covenant and the law of Moses in the salvation history. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Messiah Jesus. All of you who were baptized into Christ have, been clo- have clothed yourselves with him. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Jesus, who is the Messiah, promised the seed of Abraham, 
the one promised even in connection with Israel's Torah. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And if you read on in chapter 4, then he talks about you know, this time of preparation and, and childhood, if it, as it were, until the time when the sons are ready to be revealed. And in the fullness of the time, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under a law. Under, so he's making an argument about how God has structured the salvation history. And that's the point that I'm trying to make with the relationship between the covenant with Abraham and Abraham's obedience. Abraham fulfilling that obligation that God put in front of him made a critical contribution to God's disclosure of how the covenant with him would ultimately be fulfilled. What it means and how it's true that in Isaac, your seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed. So it's not the strict cause and effect. You do this, then I'll do this. It's much more profound than that. But it's a critical thing to understand because by the time Jesus comes into the world, um, you know, there is this sense in which all of these things that God has been doing through all of the centuries, all of that is built up this huge database of understanding and expectation in Israel's mind. The promise of the kingdom, Israel's hope of the kingdom, they're waiting for the kingdom, is bound up in all of these truths. Well, let me pray um, in closing then, and then we can open this up to some discussion. Father, I know these things can be confusing, and certainly they can come across as in a way that is, is different than we, we tend to believe. And and I pray for each one here, I pray for all of your people everywhere, Father, that we, by your Spirit, would be more truly connected with your Scriptures as you intend them to be connected with. That we would become a people who truly know and manifest, make known in our lives, in our faith, in our words, this Jesus who truly is the Messiah. It's so easy for us as Christians to use this phrase, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, without really understanding or stopping to think what that really means, what that really entails, all of the implications of it. Father, we are called to be stewards and we are called to be ambassadors for Christ, the Messiah. And this means that we have to know him through the lens of the Israelite history, through the lens of the scriptural story, and not simply as someone who appears on the scene to die on a cross so that people can go to heaven. And we we ought not to disparage that truth of the suffering death, even as we see with with Isaac, this substitutionary, this substitutionary self-giving that is according to your own appointment and your own provision, you will secure the blessings of the covenant. 
through the sacrifice that you demand, that you provide. And we don't minimize that. But Father, the truth of it is far more glorious when we understand it through the lens of the scripture. And we do live in a time, Father, when people desperately, desperately need to know the Christ of the scriptures. Not the noble, philanthropic Jesus, not the good teacher, not the docetic, uh, quasi-human God being walking around on the earth, floating above the fray. But the Jesus of history, the Jesus of Israel, the Jesus of the scriptures, the one who is the seed of Abraham, prefigured in Isaac, and disclosed to us in profound ways on Mount Moriah. So bless us, Father, but bless us with a true and and an ever-growing and ever-compelling knowledge. May we truly be disciples of Jesus our Lord, seeking to know him, be conformed to him, be truly witnesses of him. Meet us in our need, give us grace and strength, and courage for the day, we ask in his name. Amen.